Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to this talk today. I'm very excited to be here. I'm just going to, I'm not the speaker, obviously, in the Marriott, but I'm just going to give a little, like, opener to the event. Um, my name is Ucho Molu. Um, and I'm the 2L and the president of the Black Horse Learning Association here at Queen's Law. Um, I've been in this role since December 2022, actually three months into my first year. And this is now my second Black Histories and Future Marxist president. Um, I'm very excited to welcome everyone here, both students and faculty members. For those tuning in online and for those of you in person, thank you very much. Um, thank you, Anna Maria, for coming to Little Old Kingston. We're very grateful and happy to have you here. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to say a few words on the importance of this month. Um, I want to start it by saying I am proud to be unapologetically Black. The strength of my people and the strides they have. Black people persevered um, and still continue to achieve, regardless of the countless centuries of systemic discrimination. The paper for Professor Kunsu's class. Um, on the anti-Black racism faced by African Nova Scotians um, since their arrival as slaves to this country. This was information that I found out mostly through my research. All of this was brand new to me. I say this to say that Black History Month is to honor this extraordinary journey, but also acknowledging the ways in which the world has failed to protect Black people. But most importantly, this month is about openly talking about the way we can dismantle anti-Black racism on all levels. But this month and our gathering here today is not just about our history. It's actually also called, you know, the Black History and Future Month. So it is for our future, one where myself and my colleagues can gather in one room like today and discuss solutions to problems that a few years ago people were very uncomfortable even talking about. Um, so as we gather here today to talk about the ways we can build resistance and reform the ways anti-Black racism has presented itself in the criminal justice, I ask that you take a moment to reflect on your own personal lives. Um, ask yourself as lawyers, um, as future lawyers, what are the ways in my life that I'm showing up as an ally? How am I fostering the growth of the Black people around me? How am I resisting anti-Black racism in my own ways? How am I speaking up when I see something? But I also want you to remember that being an ally means showing up, being intentional, but understanding that this is the work that you must do for yourself. And I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So introduction number two. Thank you so much, Uche, for that. That was a very thoughtful set of remarks. I'm I also just want to say thank you for your leadership at the law school and generally and for um, conceiving of today's session and helping plan it. Really, we appreciate your presence here so much. Um, so you guys, Anna Maria first came to Queens about six or seven years ago. And my dean at the time, who I must stress is not today's dean, um, he was about to introduce her um, and he had no idea who she was. And so he said to me in the hallway right before, can I just get a quick bio on Anna Maria? And so I said, yeah, she's a rising star in the criminal law bar. She's a gold medalist from McGill. She's clerked for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada and a few other things. When he stood up to introduce her, he immediately forgot everything I had just told her. And he said, this is Anna Maria Ananajor. She's a good friend of Lisa's. Uh, <laughs> we have laughed about that many times since. And I'm really waiting for the day when she just changes her firm bio page to say, a good friend of Lisa's. Um, the truth, of course, is that Anna Maria has an extremely impressive CV. She is quite obviously brilliant, very hardworking, a great advocate, 
a great teacher. Um, I want to share just one sort of personal thing about her. Um, and that is, Anna Maria is one of the most independent thinkers I know. She has such a free and open mind on all topics. So she's not a person you can just put a label on her and say, you know, I bet Anna Maria and Anna Joy thinks this or that because she's, you know, a defense lawyer or because she's a woman or because she's black or because she's a mother. You could never do that with her. Um, she, she is just the kind of person who will always think afresh, no matter the topic, and she'll look at the evidence um, and come up with her view. And she always has the courage to then speak the truth about whatever the content of that view is. Um, and I think this is actually an increasingly sort of rare set of traits. And so um, I'm very grateful for her. I'm very grateful for her that she ran to be a bencher, and she's now a bencher for the Law Society of Ontario. Um, she's such a leader. Um, she's done a ton for Queen's despite having gone to McGill. Uh, <laughs> so we're very grateful for the times that she teaches for us and coaches for us, lectures for us. Um, and our only request is that she would stop doing all those same things for Osgood. Um, and with that, thank you, Anna Maria. Um, thank you so much for that, for those remarks, uh, Lisa and Uche. I was touched by um, the, the pride and ferocity that you brought to uh, the remarks that you made about the importance of understanding um, the history of Black people around the world and specifically in Canada. Um, what I propose to do today is to talk about the existence and the prevalence of anti-Black racism in the criminal justice system in Canada. But I want you throughout this talk to think with one word in your mind, and that is hope. A lot of times when we speak about the prevalence of any kind of discriminatory systemic aspect of our system, whether it be the criminal justice system or the justice system in whole, we're driven to despair because the evidence and the data is so broad about how prevalent it is, um, how it's impacted people's lives and the negative outcomes that exist in our society. One of the courses that I teach um, on a every second year basis at Queen's is a seminar called Bias and Criminal Justice System Out Outcomes. And that looks at the way in which um, bias manifests itself throughout the life cycle of a case, from the decision to arrest to the decision of the sentence that is imposed. And all of those points of inflection or points of the exercise of discretion in the criminal justice system present themselves as opportunities that can either be infected by the harm of bias and stereotypes, or it can be a pivot point, a point at which we intentionally and actively turn away from the stereotypes, the assumptions, the biases that have impacted our criminal justice system and shaped it, and now transform it. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that I've had uh, in my career to imagine a different kind of criminal justice system and to a very small extent try to actualize that in my practice. Um, what I hope, what I propose to do today is to go through um, some notes that I have made that are the foundation of a book that I'm I'm currently writing with some um, very helpful co-authors and um, assistants in, at my firm. Um, I call them assistants. They're associates at my firm. They're assisting me with the book. They're not my assistants. They're associates. Um, and 
the book is a practitioner's guide to how to combat anti-Black racism in the criminal justice system. It's going to be put out by Eamon Publishers. No date yet in the works because I have not finished it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's coming. And again, I feel like those who are drawn to this issue and this topic and are passionate about it are oftentimes fighting an uphill battle with despair because of the existence of this topic, which can be quite depressing. But I'm here to tell you that there are there are roots within our tradition, our legal tradition, and within our jurisprudence that provide us with a foundation to make a statement and to transform Canada's criminal justice system into one that turns its back on the bias and the prejudice and the historic discrimination that has colored it to date. And I'm uh, also very um, heartened or um, I feel that we're very lucky in Canada to have a system that is permeable to those kinds of questions and those kinds of issues and solutions. The fact that we have something like a Gladue system for sentencing for Indigenous um, offenders that we are trying to in some ways, now the execution is never perfect, but in principle, we have space for that in our system. And I think that that is very beautiful because... um, I used to practice in the United States and there, for example, their sentencing laws are much more rigid. Um, they, they function basically in, uh, through a, a grid system of creating guidelines. And as a result of that, there's a lot less flexibility to import the humanity, the lived history, the social history of the people that come before the courts. And so I think we need to latch on to those um, moments of opportunity that we have in our system to really speak the truth of the marginalized people that come before the courts. And there are a lot of ways to do it. So let's start building the toolkit. Okay. One of Canada's most enduring national myths is that our country is a promised land for Black people, a place where race does not matter and where incidents of racism are therefore best understood as rare, isolated, and a shocking aberration from the otherwise colorblind status quo of Canadian society. This enduring myth makes it difficult to openly and honestly discuss, let alone appropriately address, the realities of systemic anti-Black racism in Canada's criminal justice system. Today, I want to talk about building a toolkit to combat the existence of anti-Black racism in Canada. First, with the foundation. I want to speak to you about the social, political, and historical context that has shaped the current reality that we see, a reality that's defined by the overrepresentation of Black folks in the, as accused, but also as victims of crimes as well. After looking at the historical, political, and social context, I will then move very quickly to how the law has responded to advocates who bring that social context before the courts and compel the adjudicators to make decisions on the basis of these more complicated principles that challenge and defy the easy stories that we tell each other about who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, who's wrong, who's right, who's dangerous, who's safe. And then finally, with that foundation, I want us to build a toolkit for resistance and reform by identifying these substantive rules of law that have the potential to be transformed through passionate advocates in order to bring about more just and fair outcomes for people that come before the courts. So the first is to look at 
the historical, political, and social context of anti-Black racism in the criminal justice system in Canada. And I want to do that by first telling you that there are three overarching themes that I think are important for you to keep in mind as we go through this social, historical, uh, and political context and narrative. The first is from the Underground Railroad to the murder of George Floyd. The perception of Black people and anti-Black racism in Canadian conscience is intimately tied to race relations in the United States. The constant presence of this comparator society cuts both ways. Few atrocities can compare with America's history of mass enslavement, lynching, and the brutal enforcement of segregation laws which dehumanized and degraded millions of Black people for centuries. On the one hand, it feeds the sense of moral superiority that Canadians often have vis-a-vis uh, the treatment of Black people in Canada, which obscures a more complex reality and an uncomfortable reality as well. On the other hand, proximity to the United States can result in the importation of American narratives and problems to Canada, overstating the scope and scale of issues in Canada. So let me show you how those two narratives might um, conflict or interact to create a discourse that is unproductive or counterproductive in Canada. On the one hand, you have people who don't know or don't realize or don't understand that slavery actually existed on the territories. Slavery of, of people of African descent existed on the territory that is now Canada. So to those people, we have to say, Canada, you know, to those people who, who don't acknowledge that or don't know that, we have to say, look, I know you think the United States was horrible because it had slavery, we also had slavery in Canada. So it's important to, to make that statement. But on the other hand, we can't go all the way and say, because we had slavery in Canada, that we are in the same boat, in the same economic situation in terms of how what a pivotal role slavery played to the development of the American economy and the society. We can't compare ourselves to the United States. So there's a lasting legacy and a very internally ingrained legacy of slavery into the American political and uh, social and, and governmental psyche that simply doesn't exist in Canada. But that doesn't mean that we have to therefore ignore the impact that the slave trade had in Canada. We just can't assume that it equates to the same impact of systemic racism and an outright discrimination that we had and that we see uh, historically in the United States. That brings me to the second sort of overarching theme, which is that historically, the reality for black settlers in Canada was one of legal freedom, but social and economic inequality and marginalization. So if you have in your mind that you're looking at the Canadian experience of, of anti-black racism uh, to, and comparing it to what's in the United States, we think that the evolution of Canada's uh, and the history of anti-black racism in Canada flows through the similar narrative of mass enslavement, emancipation, and then systemic oppression. But in Canada, it's actually a little bit more complex. Canada, from quite early on, yes, there were slaveholders in Canada, but formal equality, so equality under the law, and facially neutral laws actually in Canada concealed the daily reality of deep prejudice, persistent theories of inferiority, and the experiences of chronic disadvantage. 
And I'm sure, Uche, in your um, paper that you wrote about the reality of um, that was experienced politically and socially uh, of marginalization by African Nova Scotians really speaks to that narrative. You won't necessarily find the kind of sy systemic discrimination in legislation as you do in the United States, but the lived reality, how those laws that are facially neutral are applied and executed on a daily basis forms the way in which anti-Black racism uh, is expressed in Canada. Seg segregation, while not always legally compelled, again, a contrast to the, to the United States. In the United States, we had legally compelled segregation that required specific legal tools to combat that kind of anti-Black discrimination. And here, Canada, here in Canada, segregation was not always legally compelled. It was just de facto. It precluded access to education, housing, employment, recreational establishments, and other essential social services that then, and this goes to the third theme that I want you to keep in mind, over time amplified disadvantage and discrimination. And disadvantage and discrimination then became mutually reinforcing. The consequence of chronic disadvantage and restricted opportunity results in marginalization of people from certain communities. But then that marginalization, so lack of employment, poor performance in education, is then seen by those who are discriminating against these people as being attributed to their racial inferiority, which is then used to justify further discrimination. And so it's a perpetual cycle of marginalization that um, pushed Black people historically in Canada to the margins of society, where, at the, where formally, in the face of the law, they were equal. Marginalization was interpreted to be the result of personal or cultural shortcomings of Black individuals, communities, and cultures. Systemic disparities that Black Canadians faced were hidden and attributed to personal choices, behaviors, and attitudes of Black people in general. Now, Black people have been living in Canada for centuries. Let's talk a little bit about just some high historical highlights of the presence of um, people of African descent in Canada. Um, I'll start with sort of the most famous one, despite the Underground Railroad. Despite the relatively short years that the Underground Railroad existed, no other historical phenomenon has shaped the way that Canadians think about themselves in respect to Black populations more than the story of the Underground Railroad. The, so the Underground Railroad actually lasted only for 50 years, from 1810 to 1860. And it was a secret network of homes and businesses and churches and taverns and other community spaces where um, opponents of slavery allowed Black people from the United States to safely rest and hide for short periods of time as they made their way, way north um, towards freedom, so either free states or Canada. The Underground Railroad, um, it, so through the Underground Railroad, it is estimated that approximately 30 to 40,000 enslaved Africans escaped to find freedom in Canada. So this uplifting narrative of the Underground Railroad in Canada as a promised land um, is, actually uh, is actually contrasted with in our sort of national dialogue with the reality of the United States as a 
a country where most Africans, um, if not all Africans at some point in time, were held in captivity. The historical fact that was not commonly known, that is not commonly known among Canadians, is that during the same period of time, Canadian uh, black, um, black people were legally owned, trafficked, and traded as enslaved properties on lands that is now called Canada. At least six of the first 16 legislators of Upper Canada held slaves. And between the years 1628 and 1834, more than 4,000 people of African descent were enslaved in French and British colonies. In the French and British colonies that would eventually enter Confederation as Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. And indeed, as late as 1808, the Nova Scotia Assembly debated a bill for regulating, it's called the, the bill for, in quotes, the bill for regulating Negro servitude. And it was prompted again by a petition for, from slave owners to seek to confirm the legality of their slavery. So unlike in the United States, where you had proactive legislations that de defined the personhood of individual black people, if they were biracial, then they would be one, you know, one, um, one half of, of four eighths a person, uh, sorry, five eighths of a person, calculations like that that were very specific and ingrained in the legislation of the United States, they didn't exist in Canada. But nonetheless, slavery persisted. So it was a socially acceptable form without the backing of a brutal legislative regime. It nonetheless existed. Slavery was legally abolished in pre-Confederation Canada in 1834 as a result of the British Parliament passing the Slavery Abolition Act. Um, when the Act granted emancipation, approximately one million Africans who were enslaved all across uh, the British colonies, um, including holdings in Caribbean and South Africa, um, and the colonies that, that make up Canada, approximately one million people were emancipated. Now, how many people were emancipated that were actually in the territory of Canada? Not that many, approximately 50. So by the time we got British emancipation, you see that there are the numbers of enslaved people in enslaved black people in the territories that would become ultimately the country of Canada are, is not that great. So we're not looking at a, a situation that is comparable to the United States where we have a system that overnight saw millions of its populations, more than the slave-holding slave populations, become liberated. And that created a kind of existential threat to the political dynamic in the United States that colors their politics to this day that doesn't necessarily exist in Canada, and it's not as direct. So post-Confederation post in Canada, negative prejudices, attitudes, beliefs, and stereotypes against Black people prevailed throughout British North America, including in the colonies that dominated, that, that joined to create the Dominion of Canada in 1867. During this period, Canadian newspapers habitually per perpetrated an understanding that careful supervision was required of people of African descent as they were, quote, incorrigibly lazy, explosively passionate, pliable, and, and credulous. 
these negative stereotypes made mixing and even associating with white, uh, uh, so, and even the, the association of white and black Canadians unthinkable. And these were the social dynamics that colored and, and reinforced the segregation that existed in society um, post-Confederation that may have not have been because of the few numbers of black people in Canada at the time that didn't warrant legislative intervention to, to support segregation. That doesn't necessarily mean that segregation didn't exist. It means that because of the low numbers of black people in Canada at the time, it wasn't necessary to legislatively enforce that segregation. Throughout the 1800s and the 1900s, these perceptions led to the racial segregation in Canadian neighborhoods, cities, towns, communities, and public spaces. While most of the segregation was informal, as I mentioned, education was one of the areas where it was in fact legislated. So segregated schools were established in Nova Scotia pursuant to the Education Act in 1836, as well as in Ontario uh, in 1850. Over time, most of the separate black schools in Ontario closed, leading to a gradual reintegration of children, though the segregation provision remained in Ontario legislation until it was repealed in, who knows what year? 1964 um, was when Ontario abolished legislation, so the, the, the legislation um, providing for educational segregation, segregation and creation of black schools was abolished in Ontario. That's not that long ago. Segregation always meant subordination, inferior resources and neglected infrastructure. Again, the role of the media and the influence of America played a role in the perception of Black people. While small in numbers in Canada, they held a, almost a mythical position in the psyche of Canadians that was fed by media and from stories from the United States. Between 1865 and 1877, the Canadian press carefully observed the American Reconstruction. Does anyone know what the Reconstruction is in America? It's a period of time that followed emancipation where America, uh, where, where the United States um, and the states that make up the United States were trying to come to an understanding of how black and white people would live together. And there was um, desegregation of some schools, some regions, neighborhoods, towns, but there was also a hard resegregation of a lot of these areas. And so what you see in the reconstruction period in America is yes, there was this formal liberation of black people, uh, people of African descent. However, you have a huge social and political backlash. You, this was the height of the creation of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. This reign of terror over black people who dared to just posit that they were human beings like the whites who were their neighbors, who dared to send their children to school, who dared to take out loans to start businesses. This is where we have the um, the uh, riots, um, lynchings. This is where that history within America begins, this reconstruction period. And during this period, media and propaganda was really instrumental in, in creating the social understanding of 
what it meant to be a Black person, and what role Black people should play in society. And that fed into what we was reported in the media in Canada. During this period of Reconstruction, one of the most insidious arguments for segregation appeared in the Canadian press. It was one that centered on the portrayal of Black men as dangerous sexual predators. Based on reports from south of the border, African-American men were regularly portrayed in the Canadian press as merciless monsters governed by uh, animal passions and disposed to savage outbursts of almost demoniacal rage and lust. These are quotes taken from uh, a newspaper in Toronto. They would avenge themselves for the sin of slavery by a widespread violation of white womanhood. And that is one theme that it prevails in terms of how this disease of anti-Black racism has infected our legal system and our understanding of who is the victim and who is a perpetrator. It's based on these stereotypes often. These dehumanizing portrayals were visceral and they're powerful and they easily sowed fear. Over time, they evolved into a sort of social panic that led for calls for urgent legislative action to stop black men from this phantom assault that they were all planning on white women in Canada. In 1911, Isabel Graham, described as a Manitoba suffragist, wrote that atrocities would inevitably be created, uh, be committed by African-American immigrants from the United States against white women and she warned that lynchings and even burnings at the stake would become necessary. The stereotype of black inferiority and its association with criminality, and especially the stereotype of black men as en enraged sexual predators is one that is deep and it persists and it is present in our criminal justice system today. How? Let me give you an example. The perception of African-American men as racially inferior and dangerously savage was so entrenched in the Canadian psyche that it measurably informed Canada's early criminal laws. In 1869, Canada's early legislators decided to retain the mandatory death penalty for rape and carnal knowledge. In doing so, they diverged from Britain where we get all our laws from, effectively. We inherited our entire legal system imported into Canada, um, modified it and tailored it to our needs. But with respect to the criminal law that was imported for Britain, we kept, we kept it intact, but we diverged in this one specific area, which was maintaining the death penalty as mandatory for the offense of rape and carnal knowledge. Why was that? Because according to Canada's Prime Minister and Minister of Justice at the time, Sir John A. Macdonald, there was a risk posed by Black men <clears throat> who he believed had the propensity towards sexual violence. He declared in 1868 that Negroes were very prone to make a, a, uh, excuse me, felonious assaults on white women. He argued that the government needed to retain the mandatory death penalty for the offense of rape to, quote, afford additional protections to women. 
During McDonald's time in office, no other, sorry, no black man was convicted of rape. In fact, McDonald's own cabinet exercised its discretion to commute the death sentence on every single non-black man who was convicted of rape during the period of time. So there is a legislation that shaped our criminal justice system because of a fear based on stereotype and prejudice. And then when it turns out that that stereotype and prejudice is incorrect in the sense that everyone who was convicted of that super harsh penalty, uh, uh, of that offense and is facing now that super harsh penalty because of the fear of black men, everyone convicted is white. So what does the government do? Well, we exercise, you know, our the, the prerogative of mercy to set aside all of their death penalties. Do you think they would have done that if the people coming before them were en masse black who were convicted of that offense? Or do you think they would have they would have let their prejudice feed or be fed by that statistical reality and then become a self-fulfilling prophecy? By 1877, due to concerns over the widespread non-enforcement of this mandatory death penalty, mandatory death penalty, everyone who was convicted did not get the death penalty because nobody who was convicted was black. By 1877, because of this widespread non-enforcement, Parliament finally revised a law to make carnal knowledge a non-capital offense, so a non-death penalty offense and to make the death penalty only optional for rape. And the imposition of such a sentence was left to the discretion of judges. No Canadian judge exercised that option in relation to a rape or carnal knowledge case until 1927, when a black man, William McCathern, was convicted of rape of a white woman after a 2.5, a two and a half hour trial by an all white jury. The sentence was successfully appealed on the basis that it was anomalous. Everybody else who's been convicted of this offense hasn't received this death penalty. They're all white. The only black person convicted, um, the judge said, I'm exercising my discretion to sentence you to death. This doesn't sound like equality before the law. This far predates the charter. And so there, this wasn't a, a charter argument that this man could stand on. But this principle of the anomaly in the face of this disparate outcomes of the application of our justice system speaks to how important it is we need we, how important it is for us to have a framework that allows us, and not just framework, but a toolkit that allows us to combat these outcomes that our criminal justice system produces that instinctively we know are unfair and unjust. Today, we look at the fact that black accused are, or black people are more likely to get arrested, more likely to report negative interactions with the police, more likely to be treated with suspicion by the police, less likely to get bail once arrested, um, less likely to have their charges diverted once arrested, receive higher uh, sentences for uh, offenses of equal seriousness, um, and be classified as more dangerous and therefore requiring a higher security category when they are sentenced and institutionalized. All of these disparate outcomes are not, um, they're not organic. There is nothing about the ethnic origin of a human being 
the degree of pigmentation or color in their skin that has any that provides you with any information about whether or not a person is more or less dangerous, more or less likely to commit an offense, or more or less likely to um, to if they have committed an offense to do it again, recidivism. And yet, because of the statistics that we have that show us the disproportionate outcomes, we know that race is used as a proxy for criminality and dangerousness at points in our criminal justice system where discretion must be exercised by um, decision makers. And so what can we do? Well, the first thing is to have courage. <laughs> it's not easy to make arguments on the basis of racial prejudice. The Canadian criminal justice system we are in a position today where we have slowly come to recognize the existence and the prevalence of the operation of anti-Black racism within it. Various institutions that govern the justice sector, including the Department of Justice and multiple cases from the Supreme Court of Canada, have accepted that anti-Black racism exists and that it is causally linked to the overrepresentation of individuals from Black communities in the justice system. Such recognition has not always been the case and its development should not be taken for granted. We must continue to fight. Historically, the general tenor of our justice system actors in Canada respecting the existence of anti-Black racism has been one of ignorance, denialism, defensiveness, and even outright hostility. Um, one example that I um, point to when I teach my class on anti-black, sorry, not, um, when I teach the class here at Queens on uh, bias and criminal justice system outcomes is the, the case of DeCoven Brown. Um, it's a 1999 case and DeCoven Brown was a young black man and a professional basketball player. I think he was, he was playing for the Raptors at the time. He was stopped by a police officer while driving an expensive motor vehicle um, and who was charged with driving over the limit, driving over 80. The officer claimed that he stopped the accused because he was speeding, but there was evidence before the trial judge that was capable of supporting a finding that he was actually just stopped for driving while black in an expensive car. So there's this specter of racial profiling. His counsel wanted to bring that up. So the defense brought an application at trial to exclude the evidence on the basis that the accused was arbitrarily detained contrary to section nine of the charter because his detention was based on racial profiling. The trial judge was so personally offended by this accusation that he dismissed the application without even calling for the Crown to respond and the accused was convicted. And then during the sentencing phase, the trial judge suggested that the accused apologize to the police officer for the allegation of racial profiling that was made by his defense counsel, because the judge said, oh, that's so, quote, nasty and malicious and troubling. It's troubling that you would raise the specter of racial profiling. The trial judge's error in the DeCoven Brown case is rooted in both ignorance and resistance, which characterized the justice system's historic response to systemic racism. And these are attributes that if you as, a, as um, an advocate going into the field of criminal defense or even prosecution, 
If you make these arguments, get ready for ignorance and resistance. Get ready for an argument that's based, if you uh, advance an argument based on um, overrepresentation of Black people in the criminal justice system, uh, expect a response like, but I'm not racist from the judge or the prosecutor. Um, and that's beside the point. No one's accusing you of racism. So check your ego. This is about resolving a systemic issue in the criminal justice system. And it requires a kind of humility and openness and that everybody has to have. Just to be a good person, consider the possibility that you don't know everything, that you have not walked in the shoes of the black young person before the court. Open your mind. And I think that's a really key uh, tool in the toolkit because that's lacking for a lot of people who are making important decisions in our criminal justice system. The judge in this, in the DeCoven Brown case, viewed the allegations of racial profiling as a personal attack on the officer. And so he adopted a posture of defensiveness throughout the proceedings. The Ontario Court of Appeal, um, the, the Ontario Court of Appeal overturned his decision. What they said, what the Ontario Court of Appeal said, is that the trial judge's failure to appreciate the evidence was based on a strong resistance to the defense application as a result of his fixed and negative view of raising issues of race. So on the one hand, at the trial level, you see how the lawyer and even the accused must have felt so dejected and alone in that context of trying to advance an argument that the judge got so angry at them for making that he asked the accused to apologize to the police officer who had racially profiled him. It must have been an extremely difficult proceeding to sit through. And as a lawyer, as someone who identifies with my clients, to have to, to, have to, to see your client who is there counting on you to be treated so badly by a by a person in such high esteem because of an argument that you tried to make on the basis of the truth and the lived reality that they have, it is incredibly hopeless as a sense, as a sentiment. But then you get to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal says that was improper. You cannot do that. In Canada, we must be open to those arguments and we must create space for them in our courtrooms. They can't be frivolous. They can't be foundationless. But if there's something in the back of your head, like there always is in some of my cases, that's telling you something is not right about this, and I know it has to do with race, listen to that and then tack that instinct onto the tools that we have in our criminal justice system. And these tools exist because of the courage of these lawyers and these judges and these advocates to put forth um, arguments that are novel, that are creative, and most importantly, that speak to the lived truth of the people um, that come before the courts. So what's an example of some of these things that can come into your toolkit? Well, we have all throughout um, the case law uh, of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, starting with I would say the first recognition is in, uh, is in um, RDS, but even before then, um, there's this very important case from the Ontario Court of Appeal called Parks. 
It's a jury selection case, and it's arguably the most important, the most significant decision to come from a Canadian court when it comes to the legal recognition of the reality of anti-Black racism within the criminal justice system and the impact that it has on the fairness of the trial process. Because courts, criminal courts, don't exist to solve all social ills. So they won't improve um, educational outcomes of children from marginalized communities. But what we can do is in the narrow set of, of um, uh, the work that is done in criminal cases, try to be as fair as possible and demand that the court listen to the lived reality of your client when defining fairness. And that's what the court has done in a number of cases. In Ontario, we have the Morris decision, which is a sentencing decision from 2019, where the court is saying that in order to understand the degree of moral blameworthiness that an accused person, a person who's convicted of an offense, has for the uh, crime that they've committed, it is important that we understand the impact that systemic racism had on narrowing their life choices. That is in contrast with this highly hyper-individualist understanding of moral culpability and sentencing that says, well, you chose to go sell crack on the corner. And so therefore you must, you did the crime, you must pay the time. And this is a more nuanced appreciation of that, which says you made a decision, but to what extent was that decision completely free and informed and your choice? What are the social dynamics around your reality that compelled you to make that decision? And how does that attenuate your moral blameworthiness? Think about it also in the application of Section 9. Section 9 is whether a reasonable person would feel detained if they were in the position of the accused being confronted by the police. And in the, the decision of Lay from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2021, the Supreme Court said, in making that assessment, we have to take into consideration the context of the... Um, tense and difficult social relationships between people from racialized and marginalized groups and the police. They are in a position of power, of less power. The police are in a position of high power and they are also the phenomenon of over-policing that exists in these marginalized communities that taints the relationship between the citizen and law enforcement and thereby must inform our assessment of whether a person who is challenging a detention on the basis of Section 9 of the Charter actually subjectively felt detained. The context of their social experience with the police should inform that. Think about Corbett applications. This hasn't been done in the anti-Black uh, racism context, but in an uh, Ontario Court of Appeal decision in King, there's uh, Corbett application is an application where the Crown seeks to adduce the prior criminal record of an accused to speak to their... Um, the, their credibility when they're testifying at trial. Now, what the King decision did is uh, affirm that given the now the indisputable reality of anti-Indigenous racism and the impact of that on um, and the impact of that on criminogenic outcomes when it, it comes to Indigenous persons in the criminal justice system, that you have to question the underlying assumption of whether or not a long criminal record actually reflects the moral turpitude of the person before the court 
Or it could also reflect the extent to which they are a victim of systemic racism, that they've been forgotten by the system, that they've been neglected. And so we cannot pass that moral judgment as easily as we could if we didn't have that contextual understanding of the operation of anti-Indigenous racism in Canada. And, and we can make the same claim for anti-Black racism in Canada. Um, and finally, we see it bleed into um, other areas of sub substantive law. In the Ontario Court of Appeal case of the Queen Ontario uh, 2021 case, it was a, uh, I'll just go over the facts very quickly. So this was in the early morning of December 26th, the 28th, 2016, a young black man, Defonte Miller, was brutally beaten by two brothers, Michael and Christian Terrio. One of them at the time was a police officer, but he was off duty. Um, in the beating, one of Mr. Miller's eyes was ruptured so badly that it eventually had to be removed and it was replaced with a prosthetic eye. And the orbital bone around his eye was so fractured um, that it required a prosthesis. So these are very serious injuries. At the time of the takedown of, the, the, of, of this incident, so takedown as police respond and are called, Mr. Miller, with these grotesque injuries, was the one who was arrested, while his assailants were standing by. Ultimately, um, after extraordinary work of Mr. Miller's counsel, his charges were withdrawn, but also the Terrio brothers now faced criminal charges. Um, Mr. Miller suffered emotional, psychological, as well as physical consequences from this beating. This issue, this matter went to trial and they were, the Terrio brothers were ultimately acquitted of the aggravated assault uh, and attempting to obstruct justice. But one of them was convicted for um, simple assault. He then appealed that matter to the Ontario Court of Appeal. And um, the unanimous judgment dismissed Michael Terrio's appeal. And it went further than that. It made significant findings related to anti-Black racism as a social reality, but it also reinforced the trial judge's decision to come to an understanding of why Mr. Miller acted to, with these uh, acted um, in the presence of these brothers the way he did. The court found that Mr. Miller had lied that he was in fact trolling the neighborhood, looking for, for um, cars to steal, and he had testified at trial that he didn't. And in most other cases, lying to the court, lying to the police is absolutely fatal. Your credibility is shot. You have no chance of getting any findings in your favor if you are found to have lied. But in this case, what the trial judge did and the court of appeal did was to interpret Mr. Miller's actions. So his flight from the police, um, his response to them trying to take him down um, through a lens that recognized the impact of anti-Black racism on his life and informed why he conducted himself in the way that he did. <clears throat> Providing an analysis to explain why Mr. Miller had expressed and conducted himself in a way that showed distrust for the police, the Court of Appeals said, the context, the social context of anti-Black racism was relevant in the case at hand. I agree with the trial judge that it would have been understandable 
for Mr. Miller to distrust law enforcement. That phrase has never been stated in Canadian jurisprudence, that it is understandable for a citizen who is, in, who is steeped in the lived reality of anti-Black racism to distrust the police. <clears throat> um, what the Court of Appeal did was concur with the trial judge's application of the socially contextual analysis that factors in the impact of anti-Black racism and supports the judge's application of that context to the decision of who to believe. What is the credibility issue in this case? And to what extent can I believe someone who lied to the police? Normally that's fatal, but let's examine his lived reality, his, ex his experience and come to a position where we can find that he may be truthful about some things and may not truthful about another thing. So what can we do with this toolkit? Well, we should continue to learn, continue to be humble, and know that we have an immense body, now a growing body, of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court of Canada and from the Court of Appeal that supports these courageous arguments that we need to make in order to challenge the assumptions that underlie our laws to the extent that they are built on uh, stereotypes um, and shortcuts that associate or create proxies between a fact in existence and the reality of criminality. All of these are things that we should always keep in the back of our mind as we continue to advocate. There's no need to be hope hopeless I hope that you all know that there is a lot of work to be done and that you can do it. We're at a really good period of time now in terms of the development of our jurisprudence in this area. We have judges and we have uh, legislatures that are open to this. So please, to the extent that you can, incorporate this important work into your advocacy. Um, and if you have any questions about how to do so, my email inbox is always open uh, and I'm happy to provide assistance. I have lots of um, templates, precedents, happy to share um, and happy to walk you through any issues that you have in thinking about how to integrate and incorporate this anti-Black racism, this historical, this contextual lens to the work that you do. Thank you.